talk is the second talk in a series on Mara. For those of you who who weren't at the first talk, I'd like to just go over the definition again of Mara. Mara has two definitions. It's known as the killer of existence and also is known as the killer of virtue. Mara is known as the killer of existence because it kills life. And if you look a little more closely at what is mean by Mara, it's, it's our perception itself, which is often unlit and dark and veiled. This darkness kills our lives keeps us unawake, unalive. It's known as the killer of existence because of that. Kills our life. It's known as the killer of virtue because if our actions are based on our foggy perceptions, if our actions are based on this unlit perception, often we're motivated by greed, hatred, and delusion, and the actions will cause harm either to ourselves or to someone else. And so that's why it's known as the killer of virtue. When we can truly see what is actually present moment by moment, when the perception is clear, then our life is filled with joy. It brings life and strength of mind. So understanding Mara is a very important aspect of our practice, of our spiritual unfolding. There's a poem I'd like to read. It's an old poem by a Chinese hermit monk named Shi Ti. Not going, not coming rooted, deep, and still, not reaching out, not reaching in, just resting at the center, a single jewel, the flawless crystal drop. In the blaze of its brilliance, the way beyond. not reaching out, not reaching in, not going, not coming, rooted, deep and still, being at the center, being home. When our attention is clear, this is that flawless crystal drop, in one moment of attention that is clear, there is this feeling of wholeness, of completeness. And this is a very deep inner security. Within each moment, there is a hidden wholeness. And it's not what is appearing that is ever the problem for us. What is the problem is whether our attention is pure enough to be with each moment in a clear way. So our task isn't to repress the darkness within us, it's to light it up. And in doing that, it opens up the possibility for more and more wholeness within each moment. You might just ask yourself within each of the armies of Mara that I talk about, how is it that these armies of Mara prevent us from seeing clearly? How do they prevent us from being home within ourselves?
The first army or aspect of Mara is described as clinging to sensual pleasures. Because we have taken birth as a human being in this particular realm of existence, pleasurable feelings, unpleasant feelings, and neutral feelings arise for us. There's a mixture. There's a mixture of these feelings. We just don't get pleasant, we just don't get unpleasant, we just don't get neutral. This is a given since we're here, since we have, we are here. The sensual realm includes many sensual objects. There's things that appeal to our senses, whether they are smells, or tastes, or sounds, or thoughts, bodily sensations. And these pleasurable feelings can bring a certain kind of happiness. It's not to negate that or reject that. What's being said is that pleasurable feelings are not the problem. It's not, it's not that we need to push away pleasurable feelings. They're not bad. They're part of our human experience. It's the clinging to the sensual objects that cause us suffering, that cause us pain. I went for a walk outside today, and the strong wind was blowing, and I was walking up the dirt road down the street. And just the colors of the leaves today and the color of the sky and the wind was so, it was so exquisitely beautiful. And as I was walking, I was just appreciating it, enjoying it so much. And then this thought came just out of nowhere. Gee, I hope this lasts forever. (laughs) And it's so interesting how quick that is. You know, I was just pleasant, enjoying it. And it's so quick, that movement into clinging. Gee, I hope this lasts forever. And I could see in that moment it was just a thought. I could let it go and keep going. But it happened so quickly. It's extraordinary. And if I believed that thought and then just went on and on about it, how much suffering that would have caused me. And we're, we're here at a time of um, the seasons that's so beautiful. Yet autumn passes so quickly. It is just such a peak of beauty. And then it passes. And it's such a good teaching to enter a three-month retreat with that. To be able to feel it. Know that it will pass and let it go. Very powerful. And it's not the beauty of the leaves or the wind that is a problem. It's if we hold on that it's a problem. So it's clinging to the pleasurable object is the first army of Mara, clinging to the sensual pleasure. The second army of Mara is what I talked about for the first talk on Mara, it's dissatisfaction. And it's that feeling that each moment just somehow isn't good enough. That we're never quite satiated with a moment, moment after moment. And this discontent often will lead to what is known as the third army of Mara, hunger and thirst. And this hunger and thirst means that we have been discontent, and then this leads us to search or yearn for maybe familiar things back home, or special kinds of food, or special kinds of facilities. So it might be that you understand that this place is pretty luxurious compared to sitting with bombs or machine guns going off in Burma. (laughs) It is a lot more luxurious, but most of you don't have your own room. 
It could be warmer. Maybe we could have more sweets at tea. There's always something. There could be more indoor walking spaces. (laughs) There's a lot of people here. Uh, There's always something that could be better or more comfortable. Could be that we want Chinese food or nice music. It can take many different aspects. But it comes from that second army, which is the discontent. And that leads to the hungering or the thirsting for something more comfortable. And if we don't see this process clearly, or at least understand it, we begin to search for what we want. And this is the fourth army, which is craving. It's that um, searching for something to make us more happy. And craving comes from not getting what we want, from not getting what our preferences tell us that we need. And it could be that we want more homemade bread at lunch, or we could want more sweets at tea, or we could want, you know, I had this sitting three years ago that was so sweet. And we could want that to happen again. We could want more concentration or more equanimity. Craving is craving, no matter what kind of level we're we're wanting. It can seem very gross, like wanting some chocolate, or very subtle, like wanting a little more concentration. It's the same thing. It's still craving, and it's still very painful. It's suffering. So we can often spend endless minutes, I'm sure you've all done this already, trying to figure out how to have the sitting you had two days ago. Just just going over and over again about how to plan it and figure it out. Well, I walked for 40 minutes and then I had a cup of tea and we try to repeat it because we liked it. Or we try to figure out the best sitting position. It's something that we just want to make better. The other way you can notice this is if you ever watch people approach the notice board, you know, the bulletin board. It's quite a fascinating study just in itself. (laughs) If you just stayed here for three months and watched people come onto the bulletin board, (laughs) it's amazing. It's just such a magnet. You can take a vow not to to look, but it's like, it just pulls us in. It's, It's just like the TV and the TV's always on. And it's whether you decide to go by or take another look. Maybe there is a note for me today. You really only have to look at it once a day, you know. (laughs) Really and truly. That pull is a kind of thirst or craving for more stimulation more input. It's because of this inherent dissatisfaction that runs through our lives that most people tend to distract themselves from it. This is what mostly is going on in the world, is this need to distract ourselves from seeing the dissatisfaction. It's like there's this continual busyness continual moving into the next moment, grasping for something new. It's like we're in this perpetual jet lag. We want life to yield this constant support or pleasure. This is a quote from Srinasargadatta. He said that to imagine that some little thing, like food or sex, or power, or fame, will make you happy, is to deceive yourself. He said that only something as vast and deep as the truth can make us lastingly happy. 
So being hooked, being hooked into our conditioned preferences, this craving, is a kind of slavery. It doesn't bring us any peace or joy in our life. If we taste the experience, even in one moment, of letting go of craving, it's so incredibly powerful, this glimpse of peace, of satisfaction. And this glimpse is when we're really present. It's awesomely simple and awesomely difficult to do. But when we taste it, we see how simple it is. It's like when we're really there for a cup of tea, just sipping the tea, or for the wind touching our cheek, or for eating some popcorn, really tasting it, or for a sneeze, or for some burning in the knee, or the miracle of one breath, the miracle of one step. We're usually so fogged in by this wanting, or its opposite, which is not wanting, that we miss this constant touching, this constant receiving that's going on moment to moment. And seeing very clearly when the attention is very pure, one can understand that everything is already here. The totality is already here. There's nothing that you have to do to get it. It's here all the time. And it's when we're craving, that's when we miss that truth. It's when we can give up holding on to the good sitting, or give up the sunny day or whatever it is that we come to that moment of wholeness again. And that glimpse keeps us going. It's so powerful, even if it is just one moment. I remember one time when I was out canoeing, it seems like a long time ago, the moment that I'm going to describe was so vivid it was a beautifully sunny day, very, very clear. It was late in the afternoon. And then this tiny cloud <laughs> came floating across the sky, just slowly, and it went in front of the sun, just for a few moments. And it blocked out the warmth of the sun. It, was, it just became very, very cold. Just the tiniest tiniest little cloud. And that's how wanting is. It's just, a, just like that thought, gee, I hope this lasts forever. It's the tiniest, tiniest little thought can throw us off for hours. It's that craving that blocks out that tremendous warmth, the wholeness of our lives that's there all the time. And there's several quite vivid examples that I have in my practice of, of really seeing this. There was one time that I was sitting here in the hall during a longer course, and it was late afternoon, and I was just sitting in here, and it was dusk, getting darker, and I'd never tasted this kind of contentment before. I just felt more content than I'd ever been in my life just that very deep sense of not wanting anything or needing anything. And then the tea bell rang. <laughs> and still I was really content, just, and everybody left the hall, everybody went to tea, and I was still sitting there. And it just switched from this very deep contentment till my mind was screaming <laughs> for tea. I wanted, I wanted to see what was being served. I wanted to know if it was chai or if it was licorice tea or, you know, whatever it was. I just can't, became totally involved in wondering what, what I was missing. It's incredible to go from that peace to that craving. 
And at the same moment, this was when a family used to live in the house across the street, and they had just gotten a dog, and the dog barked all the time. And the dog was just barking and barking and barking. And I just saw that this wanting is just like this barking. You know, bark, 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 <laughs> bark, bark, bark. And so now I label that. That's my, my note for wanting is barking. And I just noted, I just let the barking go on and on for another half hour that sitting, just barking, barking. And it just passed. It's just barking. <laughs> Sometimes it's really loud, but you don't have to believe it. <laughs> just note barking. The thing that's so amazing is that we bark for these crumbs. You know, usually <laughs> we just get these crumbs. One time I just wanted to frame a couple of crumbs and put it on the wall <laughs> with a nice frame. Because the real cake is inside. <laughs> but we just go for the crumbs. It's amazing. There's different, well, there's actually two ways that we can learn to let go. And when the clouds roll in, and sometimes the clouds roll in and they're really thick, we just don't want to let go. And eventually craving this barking, it's like holding on to a hot potato. And I say it's that, like that wanting tea, you know, when I'm completely content. And it's like we hold on and we hold on and it's like, Ouch! And it's just burning and burning and burning. And this is the state of mostly being a human being. We're fools. We just hold on and hold on. And then finally we go, Ouch! This hurts. And then we let go. And it feels so good. And we taste that peace. And that's usually what it takes. You probably see it every day. You just get backed into the corner and backed into the corner and backed into the corner. And finally, it's like the white flag comes up. Okay, okay, I'll let go. That's mostly how we let go. Then after practicing sometimes and watching that over and over and over again, there's another way (laughs) that we can let go, and that's that we remember that peace. We, re- we have this memory or understanding that when we let go, it actually feels much better than holding on. And when we have that understanding and when that understanding develops, it's much easier to let go of the good sitting. It might take five hours <laughs> rather than two minutes, or it might take two days rather than five days. Wherever you are, it's okay. It's just that we learn to let go sooner. That's what we're all doing. That the motivation is coming because we've tasted the satisfaction of the contentment. So we understand deeply that it's not worth holding on to the hot potato. But this takes time to sink in. When discontent and hunger and thirst and craving have been happening and the searching is going on, this reaching outside of ourselves for what we want or reaching inside of ourselves for deeper practice, there's that lack of resting at the center of our experience. We're not connected with the center of each moment. And the searching can be exhausting. And this is the fifth army of Mara. It's known as sloth and torpor. And I'd like to read from an article that I read from a while ago. It's from an article called On Being Unable to Breathe. And just to remind you, this man has a disease which is an inflammation of the lungs. And the disease, um, the inflammation scars the surface tissue of the lung, so oxygen can't pass in and out of the lung. 
Walking anywhere with friends, especially uphill, is an occasion for silence. I cannot walk, talk, and breathe at the same time. Every gram of oxygen must be used for locomotion. There is nothing left over. Anything extra must go. This becomes an amazing metaphor in my mind, in my life. What is superfluous? Anger that freezes into resentment, jealousy, greed, gossip, ego clinging, pretense, embarrassment, any form of fixation, running after pleasure, the discursive thought that maintain the stirring line of me. These things are very costly in terms of the life energy that it takes to keep them going. They are what conversation is mostly about. I cannot take in enough oxygen to support them anymore, except by holding completely still and doing nothing else. When the oxygen is diminished below a certain point, you must choose absolutely between feeding all your mental bloodsuckers and taking care of your true business. You just can't afford to keep them around as pets. What an opening, what a discovery, follows from that simple realization. Could I ever afford it? Can anyone? What made me think that I could not let go of this expensive baggage before now? Incredible. He can't take in enough oxygen to sustain them anymore. So when we do have these mental bloodsuckers present, they make us very tired, just reaching out, just reaching in. And when this happens, the mind feels very shrunken and withered and then the body slumps, and there's that familiar nodding that takes place. There's a fire energy absent, fiery energy is not there. And the mind is often like cotton candy or foggy. And it's important just to remember that it's the resistance to the sleepiness that is the suffering. It's just sleepiness, so be careful of the aversion to it. And then to remember to do the best you can to stay awake and to use all the antidotes that you've heard of to work with it, such as being mindful of the sleepiness itself, being aware of the sensations of sleepiness, putting all one's attention on how to sensations in the eyes feel and in the body, posture, and then trying to keep your attention moving using touch points and opening your eyes if those antidotes don't work. Most important, it's it's to remember that it's just fog, it's just mist, and that these things leave no scars. Last year, I did a retreat in Arizona for five weeks. And every day, at the same time, during a sitting, I would have the most amazing sloth and torpor. And it was the same sitting every single day for weeks and weeks. So, after a while, (laughs) I would come in toward my door from walking meditation and I would reach for the door handle. And one day I saw this graffiti carved into my door. It said, Abandon hope, all ye who enter here. (laughs) It was when I was, I was just dreading walking in for this sitting, you know, that feeling like, oh God, I'm going to be on the floor the whole time. And it was this (laughs) 
great graffiti, abandon hope, all ye who enter here. And it was such a nice thing because I went in and I just gave up. And it wasn't that I didn't try (laughs) all the little antidotes that I know of to stay awake, you know, pay attention to sleepiness, use the touch points, open your eyes, but I was still (laughs) nodding and nodding. They just didn't work. And after a few more days of this, I started to enter the room from the walking just before the sitting with the greatest uh, kind of surrender I had ever experienced. It was like, if I had one moment of being awake that sitting, I would be so happy. It was such a shift, you know, it went from, I wonder (laughs) if I'm ever going to be awake during the sitting, to just, all I I didn't even care if, you know, one moment, great, I'd be so happy, I'd walk out so happy. Um, This quality of letting go is so tremendous. It's so joyous. One thing to remember that if you're nodding a lot during a sitting, it's still very different than if you were in bed sleeping. Now, there, there are many times where you'll think, gee, it would be much better if I just went to take a nap. If I was just horizontal, it would really <laughs> help. <laughs> but it's not true. There's something happening even when you think nothing is happening. It's a great thing to remember. When you think nothing is happening, something is happening. And if you ask people who've sat for a long time, you'll hear that some people will go through the early morning sitting for two months just nodding and nodding and nodding and nodding, or whatever it is, and then at some point it shifts. And it was all those sittings where one just nodded and nodded, that, that hanging in there brings about the shift. So it takes a tremendous kind of patience going through these sleepy times. And I'd like to read a quote, actually, about patience from Rainer Maria Rilke. He said that all progress must come from deep within and cannot be pressed or hurried by anything. Everything is gestation and then bringing forth to let each impression and each germ of feeling come to completion holy in itself, in the dark, beyond the reach of one's own intelligence, and await with deep humility and patience the birth hour of a new clarity. There is here no measuring with time, no year matters, and ten years are nothing. This means not reckoning and counting, but ripening like the tree, which does not force its sap and stands confident in the storms of spring, without the fear that after them there may come no summer. It does come, but it comes only to the patient, who are there as though eternity lay before them, so unconcernedly still and wide. I learn it daily, I learn it with pain to which I am grateful. Patience is everything. The Buddha gave a sermon called the Flower Sutra. And when he gave the sermon, he used no words. He just held up a flower. And that was it. And there was one disciple in the audience that smiled, and he understood. And for me, it's my favorite sutra. I think that there's a lot we can learn from 
the opening of a flower in terms of our own spiritual unfolding. One time I had a student during a three-month course come running and she was so upset. (laughs) She said, you know, I just wish I could rip my petals open. And you probably feel like that a lot of the time. It's like if only we could just pull the flower petals open and we'd be done. Time to go home. But it doesn't happen like that. We each have a journey that unfolds in its own rhythm, in its own time. And it's just it takes that incredible patience to allow how our own individual journey happens. And we want to be perfect. We, we never want to be sleepy. We don't want any hindrances. We want to have all the factors of enlightenment in balance at all times. <laughs> but this, <laughs> this is what we want. <laughs> but it just doesn't happen that way. And it does take patience. And partly what takes patience is that when a flower opens, when our psyche, when our minds, when our hearts open, we're opening to the pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And as much as we'd, we'd like to believe otherwise, when we open to the pleasant, we, op- we, we open to the unpleasant. We can't pick and choose, well, I'm just going to open to the pleasant and keep the other stuff away. It's the whole show bit by bit. It's learning to tolerate the whole show, not just the pleasant. And often, if we opened our petals like ripping them open, it can be very dangerous because we don't have the balance of mind, we don't have the equanimity, the mindfulness, the strength to tolerate that degree of openness. It does take time and patience to develop the qualities that allow us to be with life as it really is, to be with the truth. And sometimes I liken coming on a long retreat to having major surgery without anesthesia. And it has its funny part of it, but it's also quite serious. It is like having a surgery, major surgery, without anesthesia. And sometimes sleepiness can kind of roll in. It's like a fog rolls in. And it's almost like a kind of anesthesia. It prevents us from seeing clearly. And it's not that that means that we need to indulge in it, but we don't have to take it personally. The Buddha called sleep the world's greatest pleasure. Sleepiness can be a kind of holiday or an escape from seeing on a very deep level the birth and death of consciousness. It's not easy to see. It's not an easy job that you're doing, opening to the whole show. Sometimes sleepiness comes rolling in (laughs) because we just don't have the resources to see in that moment. And that's okay. Just do the best you can. Keep going. It doesn't mean you have to stop. It doesn't mean you have to go to bed. But you can lay low. If we overcome sleepiness at times, then there's usually a lot of confidence and inspiration and energy for practice. It's quite invigorating, inspiring. And if we're overcome by the withered mind, often fear arises. And this is known as the Sixth Army of Mara. And traditionally, this fear was seen as being afraid of wild beasts or ghosts as one was practicing. 
but it can also manifest as inner ghosts. It can manifest in the form of the fear of failure. It can manifest as the dread of interviews or self-evaluation, self-judgment, self-hatred, self-pity, comparing, disappointment. And in regard to fear of failure, a friend of mine once gave me a napkin, and on the napkin it was printed, the road to success is always under construction. Keep it in mind. <laughs> We're always under construction. What, what is motivating us to practice? It's a very important question to ask ourselves because sometimes we're motivated from the fear of failure. And I think that this happens a lot because just if you consider most of our experience in schooling, going through school, Usually the motivation to work came from wanting approval or for good grades. There was no conditioning to learn to be motivated from one's own interest, from one's love of learning, one's love of the truth. And it's very important for us to learn to practice not so much from fear of disapproval, or trying to get good experiences. But really to see that the truth is important for us and that we'll make mistakes and that it takes risks to do this. In regard to fear itself, Often, if you look closely at it, you can see that usually there is some memory of an unpleasant sensation that we didn't see clearly in the past in that situation. And that in the present moment, we project that unpleasant sensation into happening in the future. The fear is rarely happening in the present moment. It's that memory that's projected into the future. It's not in the moment. And so this fear of this future moment is that we're afraid that we're not going to be able to cope again with this past unpleasant sensation that we got overwhelmed by before very important to understand this about fear. And it's like, if you think of the flower opening, when we, we really do want to open to life, we want to be with the truth in each moment, but we usually don't want any pain. We want to be alive, but we usually don't want it to hurt. Letting go has two aspects. It has the aspect of extinction or death, which we fear. And it has the aspect of flowing into the universe, which we desire. Letting go is a kind of death. It's a form of love. It's a kind of flowing into the universe, which includes the pain and the hurt. Yet the fear of this pain and hurt is so strong in all of us. It's like the sense of I or me and fear are inseparable. And it's it's like we think that we're going to lose something if we let go this terror of that we're going to lose something. And every time that fear appears, moment by moment, the fear is really presenting us with a choice. There are two alternatives. We can shut down and be separate, or 
we can let go and feel what is there. If it's the fear or whatever else it's there that we're afraid of. We have those two choices. When we're lost in the fear in any given moment, we're identified and that identification keeps us more separate, more and more fear. And in this moment, the letting go will feel like a kind of extinction or death because it's a letting go of that identification (coughs) of I, of me, rather than feeling it to be a flowing into the universe, something positive. But both aspects are present and can be experienced. To be more specific in terms of examples, one time, when I first did a long retreat here at IMS, which seems like a long time ago, uh, at one point one of my teachers told me to go into my room and not to leave no matter what. (laughs) And uh, I was quite naive at this point, and I I just, I'd never done, I'd never even seen anybody do that. I didn't have a concept of that being possible. So I kicked and screamed and went to my room. And um, I don't think I was quite ready for this experience. Anyway, every night I became more and more sensitive and uh, to the sound of the heat. And after a while, when the sound of the heat appeared, the deepest unbearable panic, you know, just, just panic. And after several nights of this, I just exploded and I, it was very cold out, it was in the winter, and I went around to every thermostat at Insight Meditation Society and I turned them all off. (laughs) It's kind of embarrassing to admit, but I turned every single thermostat down in the the buildings. And the next morning I felt so sheepish and embarrassed and everybody was freezing, you know. (laughs) You think it's cold now. (laughs) People had tons of blankets on and I finally went around and I turned all of them back on again. But it was so intense, that experience, I really felt like I had to understand why I had done that. You know, what possessed me to be that upset? And so I looked very closely, night after night, of my terror of that heat. And after a while, I started to see that the sound was unpleasant. There was aversion to the the unpleasantness. It wasn't the sound that was the problem. I wasn't mindful of the unpleasantness. There was aversion to the unpleasantness. And then, We don't like aversion. Aversion is very unpleasant, and I would push away the aversion. There'd be extreme aversion. And it was that extreme aversion that I was so afraid of. And I'd been running from it my whole life. This is what we run from. This is what we're so afraid of, is experiencing this incredible aversion. And it's so important to understand this, that at that point I just realized that I just didn't want to run away anymore. That I'd been running and running and running my whole life. So it wasn't the heat itself. But to be able to just stop and settle in and to face it takes a tremendous amount of courage. And it's the level of fear itself that can be very painful. So much I wanted to say about this, but I don't think time. When we have a sensation, physical sensation, we can see it as just a sensation, not mine. When we have a thought, we can see that it's just a thought, not mine. When we have a feeling, we can see it just as a feeling, not mine. But when we're not mindful 
of that, when we grab on to the pleasant or push away the unpleasant, then we get overwhelmed. We get overwhelmed by fear, we get overwhelmed by anger, we get overwhelmed by knife blades in the knee, or jealousy, or whatever. And when we get overwhelmed, we feel defeated. And we feel like a failure. And we think that there's a fear of this particular sound, or this emotion, or this sensation. And what we're really defeated by is that we're not able to open to it in that moment. It's not the sound, and it's not the physical sensation, or the emotion. It's that we're not able to open to it, and we hate that. We, we feel defeated, and then we take all our self-hatred and dump on ourselves. But it's at that moment that we see that we can't open, that it's important to back off, and to be gentle, and soft, and rest. And if you push it, there'll be more and more sense of defeat. So it's being able to take a workable dose of whatever it is that's difficult to work with. And if it feels like too much, to back off. Because it's strengthening to be able to open to something. And it's weakening whenever we keep getting defeated. It's wise to back off if we don't have the strength because that will help us build up the strength, the rest, to go at it again next time. And it's almost like learning to ride a bike when you're young. We fall down a lot. (laughs) We fall down and we fall down and we fall down. And finally we learn to ride the bike. And this is much more difficult. Learning to open to life is is so much more difficult than learning to ride a bike. There's another level of fear that I wanted to mention, and that's um, the fear of losing one's identity itself. One time a friend of mine did a three-month retreat, and she said that about three-quarters of the way through, she started really missing her friend. And so she tried to imagine what her best friend looked like, and all she could get was an eyelash. And then... (laughs) You know, maybe an ear would appear, <laughs> and an eyelash, and then, you know, the color of the hair, but she could never get the full image <laughs> of her friend. And it really scared her. You know, she just thought, oh no, I'm really losing <laughs> everything. I can't even remember what my friend looks like. Um, and at this point in the retreat, with everybody's really settling in, and one's past existence, is kind of far away. One's life is a lot more distant. And it gets a little scary at times. There's a build-up of energy that's happening. And if one allows that energy to really build, you can use that energy to go more deeply inside and to explore unknown territory. And if one gets uncomfortable or afraid of that buildup of energy, that's when we usually go on holidays. We go on fantasies or write books or yogi mind happens where we get really caught up in something that (laughs) really isn't as important as we think it is. So these holidays or escapes occur because we're afraid to go deeper. And I think what's very important to remember is that there is a middle way at that point. If one is afraid to go deeper, one doesn't have to use up all that energy and then crash and then start again. One can see the resistance to going deeper and then again back off, lay low, open up your attention. Find the edge of awareness and stay distant for a while. 
rather than force it and keep getting closer and closer, open up, take a little break. Rather than a five-hour holiday or two-minute holiday, that you can learn that balance and middle way each day more and more. It's especially helpful to understand that it's the fear of going into the unknown. What's really scary is that we'd rather go on those fantasies than explore the unknown. That can be even more scary because the mind is fathomless and vast and deep. The universe is so awesome. And we rather these very familiar thought patterns than to go deeper at times. And it's to have compassion for yourself and ourselves, that the journey takes a lot of courage and gentleness and patience. Incredible patience. I remember last year, yogi mind is so interesting because we can focus on the most amazing things. Actually, I'll do something more close, recent. Joseph and I were teaching a course in Switzerland, and uh, there was this drama going on the whole month about whether the window should be open or closed. (laughs) And every sitting, somebody would get up and open it. The next five minutes later, someone would close the window, someone would open it, someone would close it. And by halfway through the course, you know, sometimes there'd be these outbursts of laughter in the whole hall because it was just so funny to see how caught up in this people were getting. This war, it was the window, it's a war window. Last year there was a war over the light bulb in the bowling alley. It was was so amazing. (laughs) Last year, uh, this always happens, there's some kind of thing that happens, yogi mind and um, some people like the bowling alley dark, and some people like it light. And so at a certain point, someone actually would unscrew the light bulb <laughs> and take it so that, <laughs> so that no one could turn on the light. And after, you know, the maintenance started having to replace bulbs every day <laughs> because it was this war going on over the light in the bowling alley. And it's, it, it takes a lot of humor and patience with all of us because this happens. There can be this war going on and people take it really seriously. But that is just yogi mind, just to remind you that if you get caught in some kind of war, just to kind of get some space and see that what happens is that IMS becomes your whole world. And you, you know, your life is very distant now. And things here become very important. And it is a little scary at times, but it, it's very important to understand that if something's really driving you crazy, talk to one of us, leave us a note. Because it happens. It's not like Yogi Mind won't happen. My motto is that I always wait a whole day before I send a note. <laughs> like if I have something going on and I write a note to somebody, I always wait a day. Because usually it passes. Usually what was so important and upsetting will pass. And a day or two you'll get a perspective on it.
it's important to find your own personal rhythm of growing, of opening, closing a bit, opening. And to find the space within yourself that you're exploring for yourself, for your own love of the truth. Not so that you're performing or pleasing others or comparing yourself to others. And it's really a matter of taking responsibility for your own mind. It's finding that inner jewel inside or trusting that it's there. And it's a form of maturity. It's taking responsibility for your own birth, for your own unfolding, moment by moment and breath by breath. And so no matter where you are, because we're all in different places, we're all taking a step, but it's all different for each of us. Where you are is the teaching. If it's restlessness, it's restlessness. You don't have to get a concentrated sitting in that moment. What you need to do is open to restlessness. And if it's fear, it's fear. Or if it's concentration, it's concentration. But just to keep letting your own unfolding occur and to trust that, to be where you are. And each moment is unique and total and pure if you can trust that. sit for a few minutes. It says, it's better to live one day in mindfulness than to live a hundred years foolish and uncontrolled. 